Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 12, 2016, and my guest is Timothy Taylor, author, managing editor of the Journal of Economic Perspectives. He blogs at The Conversable Economist. Tim, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, thanks. We're going to start our conversation talking about a recent uh, blog post of yours uh, on the appropriate roles for government and business. And you made the point, uh, echoing uh, someone else, that we, we seem to be getting their roles confused. Explain what you meant. Well, the the comment was based a little bit on a quotation that I've used in class and I have up on my door every now and then um, from an, an old newspaper writer named Donald Call. And uh, Call said, uh, we have come to rely on capitalism for justice and the government for economic stimulation, precisely the opposite of what reason would suggest. And this is the line I liked. He said, capitalism does not produce justice any more than knife fights do. It produces winners and energy and growth. (laughs) It is the job of government to channel that energy and growth into socially useful avenues without stifling what it seeks to channel. That's the basic problem of our form of government, how to achieve a balance between economic vitality and justice. It's a problem we increasingly ignore. Uh, And I guess what struck me about that, the reason I use it in class, is um, it just seems to me that uh, often when people talk about growth, the first thing they talk about is not the role of the private sector or firms. They talk about how the government can give us growth through uh, tax cuts or spending increases or the Federal Reserve. When they talk about fairness and justice, they don't talk about the government doing that. They talk about how companies ought to provide fairness and justice in wages and health care and benefits and all sorts of things. And so it seems to me that our social conversation about those things is topsy-turvy. So let's take them one at a time. Uh, let's start with the government side. Uh, right now, the economy's limping a lot. It's doing okay. The last job report actually was pretty good. Um, but it's been a disappointing recovery from 2008. It was, uh, I mean, the recession ended, but it did not, we did not get the robust growth in either output or employment that often follows large recessions. So a lot of people have been very disappointed and think we ought to try to do something about that. Are you suggesting that that's uh, unlikely to happen, unlikely to be effective, or are you suggesting it's, it's just, um, it's just not possible. Sure. Um, well, there's a there's a long-standing distinction between uh, countercyclical policy, where you're doing because there's a recession, and the long term of what you're doing to build longer-term growth over a period of of decades or more. The the bounce back out of the recession has been sluggish and soggy, and we never really have gotten the the quick bounce back that that we often have expected. People used to talk about V-shaped recessions where you sort of drop down and bounce back up. But the last few recessions have been have been soft and sluggish, and they've been uh, what we called at the time jobless recoveries, where job growth has been slow to resume. So I, I tend to take a – I think of it as a middle-of-the-road view that when you are in the middle of a recession, sure, there's a role for the government to do some things like run a larger budget deficit, uh, do some extra spending, do some tax cuts. There's a role for the Federal Reserve to reduce, uh, to reduce interest rates, uh, all in the name of helping get you out of the recession. But once you're out of the recession and uh, now unemployment is down to 5%, I don't think the government is going to be what pushes us forward at this point. At this point, we're even though things aren't aren't what we'd like to be or haven't happened at the pace we'd like them to be at, I don't think long-term prosperity is going to be built on low interest rates and high government spending. In the long run, prosperity is going to be built on the actions of, of firms creating new products and goods and services. Innovation, obviously, and, and productivity are the normal places that we expect longer-term growth to come from. And the growth rate, whether we're, you know, we're, we're technically out of the recession now for seven years, um, 
think the summer of 2009 was the technical end of it. And so this is the new normal. And a lot of people find it disappointing. And so they do, they want something more. Um, politicians are pressured to, to create something more. So uh, a lot of people argue we need to subsidize innovation or other sectors, certain sectors of the economy. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I, I of course think there's there's good economic arguments for the government to support scientific research and research and development. But I think the, the underlying tough question here is what in the business literature they call a core competency. You have to think about what you're good at and what companies tend to be good at at the most basic level is is how do you produce something? How do you transform something? And how do you tweak it and change it and deal with costs and characteristics of whatever it is you're doing in a way that you can sell it? That's what that's what companies have as their core competency. And of course, companies are sometimes tempted to do things like take advantage of people or commit fraud or, or you know, emit pollution or different sure. things. And there, there's a role for government in those things. But the real core competency of, of companies is to push on that side. And the real core competency of government on the other side, it seems to me, is that it can uh, collect money. Uh, it's good at collecting money uh, yep. from people who don't necessarily want to pay. <laughs> it's good at writing checks. Um, and it's good at setting up a set of rules and then at some level enforcing those rules. But it's not necessarily good and often isn't good at all at the process of, uh, at an intimate small level, making stuff, uh, changing stuff, transforming stuff, and providing services to people. So uh, so I think that the trick is to draw the line between those two. It's not that government doesn't have a role in some things like encouraging research and development. I actually am a, a supporter of the idea that we, we should think seriously over time about doubling our government support of research and development or more. But when the government says we're going to start – we're going to heavily subsidize a solar energy company, it doesn't tend to work out well. And even – even closer examples like um, think of the uh, the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration at the airports and so on. I would much, much prefer the old days where those were run by private companies and the job of the government was to set rules and go in there and try and beat the system and check out how well they were doing. Because now you sort of have government enforcing government workers and the government workers aren't going to be fired. Their, you know, their administrators aren't going to be fired. So you have this situation of the government trying to provide a service, which which isn't what it does best. So let me um, I'm going to push back on part of that, and or try sure. to get you to clarify it a little bit, or or flesh it out a little bit more. Somebody actually coincidentally wrote me yesterday asking if I thought the government had an important role to play in R and D, research and development, and I. I responded with a rhetorical question, which was, do you think it would do it well? And the, the of course, there's a theoretical argument for why basic research is best done by uh, the government rather than a private firm. There's not always a, a return to, pri to basic research that's captured by the person doing the research. And so there's an argument that it's a public good that should be provided by the government. The challenge is the incentives the government faces in providing that that public good or the research and development funding. So I certainly understand the argument. The question is, just as there's a, a problem with government services being provided in that they may not do it so well and the incentives are troubling, the ability to fire is, is difficult, um, politicians and administrators tend to follow incentives. And you and I might imagine a government budget that was spent on R&D that might advance the world's knowledge. But <laughs> it's not necessarily going to be the case that government will actually that will be what actually government actually does with the money. So, have you thought at all about how that might be structured to avoid those kind of problems? Sure, of course, and and I think that's a a good reasonable set of concerns. And I'm under no illusion that uh, government actions, when uh, subsidies are handed out, will be will be governed by I don't know some some perfect Aristotelian notion of great science, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's going to happen through a political process. But that said, there are, I think, better and worse ways of doing it. 
there are, for example, lots of government grants are given out through competitive processes where people have to submit grant applications and they compete to some extent against each other. There's others where they set up a contest uh, for a uh, robotic car or a certain kind of battery or a certain kind of pharmaceutical and uh, the winner of the contest receives a certain amount. I think that uh, there, some of the government labs have a, a reasonable record, perhaps a better record than I necessarily would have expected mm-hmm. at, at doing yep. direct science. But that's um, – so I wouldn't rule that out either. But I think that if you – I think you know, where your point really kicks in hard is it's easy to point to certain areas of research. Um, you know, right now it's energy technology, but sometimes it's a certain health condition or a certain health thing where, where for that moment, um, every, that's in the news. And so that gets lots yeah, and lots sure. of grants. And you look around and you think, well, what about this other health thing? What about this other technology, this other approach? And it's, it doesn't seem to be getting much. And I guess my answer there is um, I'm not worried about underspending <laughs> or, or overspending on things. I'm worried about underspending. And so... So I'd rather see more in some categories, uh, even if I, again, I, I'd like to see more in lots of categories. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, and it's, it's, a, it's a good point, I, the only thing I'd add is that, of course, the private sector, there, there are prizes already out there uh, for, say, a better battery. If you, can, if you could develop a battery that improved uh, the life of your cell phone's battery by 50% or even 20%, you make a, you can make a huge amount of money. So <laughs> Absolutely. those prizes are out there. The, the question is, are there prizes that aren't being offered? And then you might ask, well, should we offer that prize if it's not being offered by the private sector, is if the natural returns aren't there? And that's always a challenge. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really difficult question. Um, I guess what I would say about private companies having that kind of a return is that private companies are, of course, not just one company, but it's a weird network of companies. And one of the things we've seen a lot of in the last 20 or 30 years, if you go back a few decades, giant companies like you know the old AT&T or DuPont or others used to have enormous internal R&D laboratories where they developed stuff. And over time, a lot of those companies either didn't do so well or in the case of AT&T got broken up. And so now what seems to happen is that tiny little companies come along with an R&D idea and they're sort of funded by venture capitalists or angel yep. investors. And what they're hoping to do is hit that home run, as you described. And if they hit that home run, then they'll be bought out by one of the big boys. And so a lot of the big companies have in a weird way outsourced their R&D. And, uh, and they're hoping to jump in at the key moment when something has an appropriate proof of concept or an appropriate you know, uh, demonstration that it really works. And so when I look at that network, um, I guess I'm, I'm underconfident that that network provides a sufficient level of support for all the different ideas that might be out there. Uh, I agree it doesn't have to be direct government support for those. I mean, I think sometimes there are ways in which there's tax treatment of research and development and other things that can make a real difference too. That's a great point though about the large firms because it, it reminds me of of sort of, I think of two forces at work there, which I hadn't thought of before, uh, but your comment sparks the thought, which is in the pharmaceutical industry, pharmaceutical companies, there are very few of them. They're very large. And their R&D is, is not – there's a lot of R&D. It depends on how you define R&D. But right. a lot of their new products do come from smaller pharmaceutical companies, and they get bought up, not the companies themselves necessarily, but the idea is certainly the, the rights to the, to the new drug. And what's going on there is a couple of things. One part is I think the phenomenon that you're alluding to, which is sometimes it's, it's just inefficient to have a large R&D uh, internal R&D effort because it's just hard to to monitor it. It's hard to spur it to to do great work. It gets a little bit bureaucratic. Um, in a way, it's all the problems with government R&D brought into correct, the company. <laughs> correct. We, we, we can – I'm certainly capable of romanticizing the uh, capitalism and, and the innovative talent of the private sector. But certainly large companies can get um, fossilized a little bit. So what one reason, argument for – Outsourcing that is is that you get lots of competition among those small firms desperate to hit that home run. But the other reason is that the small firms can't compete with the larger firms in certain areas because of fixed costs of 
in the case of pharmaceuticals, of, of complying with FDA uh, requirements. So the testing requirements of the FDA are so large and so uh, expensive, small firms can't afford it. Uh, so they outsource that part to the larger company. The larger company yep. becomes, you know, for better or for worse, their specialty is is compliance. And so oh, that's right. Their specialty is taking it to scale, which yeah. means in pharmaceuticals getting through the government barriers. <laughs> right. And, and so it's uh, just an interesting point. I don't think it's it's not all that. That's not the only reason. I do think there's this economic what you might think of as a Kosian uh incentive to to outsource that and to not have that be internal as to part of the to be part of the firm. But those two things working together in a place like pharmaceuticals or make make it such that a lot of the 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 I think I'm not sure 100% sure of this, and I'm sure my listeners will will correct me, but I think a lot of new innovative drugs come from smaller outfits rather than the giants. That's my impression, or at least some I do. Think it, I think it's not even just, just drugs, but I think you know, lots of – uh, software things or games or uh, or you know technological developments in the electronics industry in general come out of smaller shops and then they sort of work their way up and uh, as you say get bought up and, and absorbed and and big companies in a way can be thought of as the companies that put it all together rather than the companies which yep. you know, start from the basic science and they have the marketing expertise they have the scales you talked about. Of course, there's different firms try different approaches. You know, Apple, which has an enormous amount of cash, probably less today than it had a little while ago, but uh, <laughs> they, they have a lot of cash. And you'd think they could – they have a huge internal set of, of software engineers and designers and other skills, and they spend a lot of money on that. But they could spend an enormously larger amount. They choose not to. They'll often buy technologies that they like uh, that come along. Whereas I feel like a company like Google, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I feel like Google has a larger uh, stock of in-house folk to transform Google's products uh, directly. And that's not 100% true. Obviously, uh, Google buys companies all the time, and and uh, but but obviously, but there is a way, there is a range of choices in this in this space that different companies can make. I think that's right. I, I don't know you know, either company intimately. But the thing I've been impressed with by Google is Google also has this willingness to drop projects and cut projects and give up on things, yeah. uh, in, often in a quite a public way. And I think one of the things that people worry about in big companies, it's what you were saying before about bureaucracy, that you start down a certain road and you ignore your sunk costs and you just keep chucking more money into that rabbit hole over and over. Uh, and Google does seem to have an ability to, at various times, say, well, that's not working and we're just shutting that down. And I, I admire that ability quite a bit. I think if uh, it's, it's almost a, a venture capital-like ability Correct. to say, look, that idea is not working and we're just not funding it anymore. I think a lot of companies, for good reason, don't trust their internal bureaucracy to make that choice. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to find out how they make those decisions uh not that they never necessarily want to tell us, but it would, it would be fun. To, <laughs> we'll know when the biographies get yeah. written in a decade or two, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope. I hope. Um, let's turn to the let's turn to the other side of the equation. So we've been talking about uh, government and stimulating growth and some of the trade offs there that that are inevitable. But uh, in in many ways, the more interesting part of the topsy turvy uh, observation we started with that you started with is this idea that we should turn to business or to the private sector or to capitalism for fairness and justice. So what what do you think uh, in that quote you read, uh, what kind of things are we talking about there? Well, I guess when I look out there at uh, concerns, for example, about health care or about uh, about fair wages or benefits for people, um, they're just a, a wide variety of things that you think about companies where we're always sort of telling them to do these things. You know, we're we're telling them to, uh, you know, provide job training. We we tell the private sector when you know when with housing permits to build a certain amount of affordable housing and and to build parking spaces and to clean up the environment. And and it's not that the instinct behind those things is necessarily completely wrong. As I was saying at the beginning, I think that there is a role for government regulation of different kinds. But I guess I'm often put in mind of stories about golden geese and eggs and what happens if you don't pay attention to your golden geese. Uh, there's evidence out there the last 10 or 15 years that the 
the rate of startups in the U.S. economy has been steadily diminishing, not not just since the recession, but since the late 90s, and that a smaller share of the workforce now works for smaller companies than, than used to um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, I, I think that I sometimes think to myself, if if someone came along like, uh, I don't know, uh, the modern Henry Ford and had an idea for an enormous factory which would provide an enormous number of uh, jobs to the working middle class, where could that modern Henry Ford build that factory? Um, Would they even be able to build it, (laughs) Uh, at least in any urban area in the U.S., or would they be swamped for five or 10 or 15 years in you know, permits and, and regulations and zoning and traffic and, and on and on and on. And I, I think that we are in danger of looking at the private sector as, as that golden goose that we can just tell it to do things. <laughs> and, um, and what we really want companies to do, we really want them to engage in that capitalistic knife fight. We really want them to focus their energy on how do you make things and make things better? We really want them to compete with each other. We don't want them to compete on the basis of who can survive the ordeal of getting a zoning permit. <laughs> um, and so that's a, I think we're in some danger of making it much harder for both small companies to get started and also for the companies that we, we tend to glamorize, you know, the old, the old big auto companies or steel companies, you know, companies that had huge numbers of middle-class jobs We've made it very difficult for a company like that to keep functioning, you know, if one did come along and was trying to grow. Yeah, it's an interesting set of points. I don't I don't think we fully understand why the startups are declining. I, and, and, of course, I think most people would assume they're rising, growing dramatically. And we have so much press coverage of the best ones and the most exciting yep. ones. And We see the winners. <laughs> we see the winners and we assume that – We've interviewed you know many of the f- folks in that world here on Econ Talk, and and it's exciting. And we think of our country as pretty entrepreneurial, America, and it it, it is relative to the rest of the world. But it is interesting the data, at least, it could be a data problem. Uh, but the data, and it may be a you know, measurement problem. It's challenging uh, to think about how you measure. But I I don't think it's necessarily harder. I, I, Obviously, there's a lot more regulation than there was 50 and and 100 and even 25 years ago. But it's not clear to me that that stops firms from getting started. I think it's still pretty easy to start a business in the United States. I think the incentive to grow it is what is challenging. You, and you alluded to that. I think the – first of all, a lot of the regulations don't kick in until they have a certain number of employees. So that's that does discourage firms from getting – uh, growing up to a certain point, and they tend to they can be, have an incentive to stop. But most there are plenty of firms that do grow bigger. The question is, has just gotten sufficiently more expensive to do that, and that's discouraged uh, the the size that we're talking about. Or is it other economic factors that that we've also implicitly been talking about in our discussion a few minutes ago, right? Where it just doesn't make sense to be a Ford Motor Company of nineteen twenty. Anymore, we, It doesn't make sense in today's world where transa- transaction costs are relatively low compared to, say, 40 or 50 years ago through the Internet, that firms are much more able to be smaller and more nimble. And, and vertical integration just doesn't make sense the way it used to. So it's, it's not clear which of those effects is really driving things. So, and I, I don't think we're going back to the days of, you know, Henry Ford's old River Rouge plant where there was, what, you know, a mile long and you sent in, you know, iron ore at one end and cars came out the other end. I think yep. the old – the whole hugely integrated factory is is somewhat behind us, but I, as I say, it's perhaps more of an impression than a provable fact. But when I look around at 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 the struggles that companies have when they when they wish to expand and how they wish to grow, it it does seem to me like a real struggle. I mean, I I occasionally say something like. Uh, you know, as just one example, it's not a company, but a project. Um, you know, we we started and won and fought World War II in roughly a third of the time it's taking to rebuild the site at the World Trade Center. Um, that's that's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's a big difference in social flexibility, and it's a difference in ability to deploy resources in certain ways. Uh, and and 
you know, say those are extreme examples. I, you know, they certainly are the pressure of war and, and the aftermath of, of catastrophic terrorism. But there, there's some sort of underlying message there, I think, that, that is true. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I, you know, I think sometimes about um, – so I don't know if this is the flip side of that point or a related point. But um, and I, I, when I was younger, the, the argument was, well, government has to do certain things of certain size because the private sector just doesn't have the scope to do it. Um, and I, it's pretty amazing now what the private sector is capable of doing and, and the amounts of, of money that are available in capital markets now for firms to access if they have a first-rate idea. But I'm thinking, for example, about the Hudson Yards project. I don't know if listeners – I don't think we've talked about it much on this program, but Hudson Yards is a the, the covering over of an enormous stretch of, of many, many blocks, square blocks in New York City of a rail yard, covering that over – and building skyscrapers and apartment buildings and shopping and other infrastructure things on top of a rail yard. I mean, it's an unimaginably large engineering project. It's going to take a long time. Uh, it may t- it'll probably take longer than it took to fight World War II. Uh, but it's a, it's an incredible uh, mobilization of resources uh, f- that, that's happening there. And so there are still. And it is in the same areas, the aftermath of, of 9-11. It's in New York City. Having said that, of course, it is an enormously uh, bureaucratic project almost by definition in terms of the cooperation and, and permission you have to get from government and city, city, state, and federal government for a project of that size. So I'm sure that isn't a large part of why it takes a long time. Uh, but I want to move I want to move away from that point, if that's okay. And, and get at a different aspect of what of what your observation observation uh, is saying, which is that you know when I look at say Walmart, which is a lightning rod for many people, and people don't like the wages at Walmart, and they want Walmart to pay more. That's an aspect, and it might not just be Walmart; it could be a a certain type of of skill set that a, that a certain type that workers have. But that's what I see as the this fairness issue that that comes down. It's not just the mandating of, of benefits per se. It's what you talked about at the beginning. It it has to do with the fact that I just don't like these labor market outcomes. I don't like that, says, says say some observers, they don't like that Walmart pays a certain wage, that an Uber driver only makes X dollars. I see that as sort of the issue that people are increasingly wanting to fix via capitalism rather than via government. Do you agree with that? Sure. Well, I think there's some truth to that. I, I mean, I guess I had two, two reactions to that. One is you're reminding me a little bit of a conversation I had with an old friend of mine some years back, uh, a non-economist, and we were tra- tra- talking about the minimum wage, and I was trying to explain sort of an economic viewpoint of the minimum wage in a, in a nonpartisan kind of way. And so what I was sort of saying was, look, you know, uh, minimum wage – the extra money for that minimum wage, it has to come from someplace, you know, and maybe it comes from hiring fewer workers or maybe it comes from higher productivity or it comes from cutting certain job perks or it comes from higher prices to consumers or it comes from lower wages. rent. But, you know, it comes from someplace. And so you have to, without specifying the place, you, you have to understand you know, where it comes from and and you have to think about that trade-off. And uh, my friend looked at me for a long, slow moment and said, <laughs> um, "And said, you know, I really don't like to think of the world that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's just a perfect answer because it yeah. was an honest answer yeah. and it was an accurate answer. <laughs> yeah. um, but that, that sense of I just don't like to think of the world that way um, seems to me the sort of thing you're – you're talking about, and I guess you know it's the you know, we're both trained as economists, and so we're both almost forced by our way of thinking to you know to think about the world in that kind of a way. And and once you start thinking in that way, then it just pushes you. I think there's a lot of people out there. I, I there's this there's this movie, and it must be 20 years ago now, called Dave. I don't know if you remember. It was back in the 90s. It had Kevin Klein, sure. who I really like. Yep. And at the tail end of the movie, the, sort of the movie is you know doofus ordinary guy ends up as president. Comedy results. Um, <laughs> and then at the very end of the movie, he um, 
you know, he has his, his big, you know, breakthrough, leadership breakthrough. And his leadership breakthrough was that he would just pass a law and guarantee everyone a job so there would no longer be any unemployment. And, and I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't think this has ever occurred to anybody before. You know, yeah. it didn't occur to anybody in, I don't know, Sweden or Japan or Germany or, you know, no other countries figured out, oh, yeah, if we just passed that law. And, you know, you just sort of think – I think a lot of people think that way. You know, why don't we just get rid of unemployment and give everybody a job? And of course, if you think about the trade-offs, you think to yourself, well, you know, do you have to take the job they offer you? Do you have to take the pay they offer you? Can they make you move? You know, how do private sector employers react to these jobs? You know, what you know, what what would the cost be of it? Can you can you fire people? You know, I mean, just on and on and on and. And um, but as my friend said, I just don't like to think about it that way, you know. Um, and so I, I think that that that's really an important thing to think about. <laughs> um, and yes. I think it, it 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 illustrates sort of a deeper problem or point that comes up with the profit sector and the and the and the government sector, which is this question of of budget constraints and. Yes, I became familiar with some of this through the work of Janusz Kurnai, the um, Hungarian economist, who wrote a lot about what he called soft budget constraints, meaning the when government ran enterprises in Hungary back in the old days, if a company was you know doing poorly, um, the company you know didn't go broke, it didn't lay off workers, it didn't cut pay, it didn't even reduce output. It it had a soft budget constraint, so basically it asked the government for more money. <laughs> um, in a way, the, the companies in that world became sort of like college students. You know, Their notion of a budget constraint was asking someone else for money. <laughs> um, and uh, it's true that money runs out at some point, but it can take a long time. And there, you can get really focused on asking for more money instead of altering your behavior in one way or another. And, uh, and I, you know, companies and 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 for-profit companies, they, for better or worse, they they face, they have to make their costs balance out. And Walmart doesn't have a soft budget constraint. You know, Walmart can't just just lay out money and and not see it show up somewhere else in the company's financial statements. And again, we can have a reasonable argument over, um, you know, what rules make sense and what rules don't make sense and who would actually bear the cost and, you know, would there be this reason, would there be that reason? I'm I'm open to that argument, but I'm not open to the argument that you can just sort of snap your fingers and make the money appear. <laughs> um, That's a great – You know, it comes up in a bunch of ways. You know, it comes up in the minimum – it comes up in wages. It comes up in, say, when people talk about the corporate income tax, right? I mean, that yeah. we just make the corporations pay. You just say the money has to come from someplace. <laughs> Yeah, one of the most important lessons of economics is that who sends in the check for a tax is not necessarily the people who pay for it. And But I want to come back to your point about I don't like to think about the world that way because I think that's a very deep insight. And I think as economists, there's a tendency to look down on that attitude. Um, and I want to try to be empathetic to it rather than to sneer at it. I've sneer, I sneered at it when I was younger. I'd say, well, <laughs> come on, it's ridiculous. But I think it's a very human – deep part of us um my version of that story i have more than one unfortunately i only tell one i don't know if i've shared this with listeners or not but it's very related to your point where i was at a lunch and my wife foolishly mentioned that that she shopped at walmart for something she had bought something at walmart and this was greeted with horror by some of the people at the table and one of them said you shop at walmart because obviously that would be a that that's that's unjust. It would be wrong to shop at Walmart. And then I mischievously, um, with a straight face though, not not openly, but I have to confess I had some mischief. I said something like, "Well, we always try to shop at Walmart because we want to increase the demand for workers with lower skills." And mm -hmm. I, that was a. I believe that. I, it's not. I don't really always try to shop at Walmart. We actually don't <laughs> shop often at Walmart. It's far away here because. Here in Montgomery County, outside of Washington, D.C., the city government's made it hard to start Walmarts. Uh, yep. That's related to your other point. It's very hard to, to permit a large store in Montgomery County. It's expensive, and then 
as a result. And that's expensive. a retail operation. Expen- Think if it was yeah. a manufacturing operation emitting something. Yeah, it's, it's expensive <laughs> in time as much as money, and it, and, it's, and it forces businesses to coddle and pander to lawmakers here, but um, city county council members. But, but the point is, is it, I made that remark, and it's a, it's a uh, I believe it. I believe it's true that shopping at Walmart is good for workers with low skills. But obviously, that's a unusual viewpoint. And uh, the person who didn't like shopping at Walmart responded to it in a very um, educational way for me. She could have said, "Wow, how would that work?" Because that you know that's not what she thinks, and that would have been interesting if she she cares about workers. I think, sure. and you think that would be of use to her worldview. But instead, she said, "I don't have to listen to this." And she got it from the table, <laughs> which is which is a different response. And that's your friend's response. It's like, you know, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to think that that that's possible for a whole bunch of reasons. But but some of them are you know, some of them I don't like some of the reasons, but some of them I, I have to confess, you know, that there, there's an argument there, which is, you know, you and I and people trained in economics see the world as is expensive <laughs> that there's costs that there are as you say the money has to come from somewhere that's not that's not that kind of takes the fun out of it um it's realistic we think and i think it is but it it's um i understand how unpleasant it is to be confronted it's like someone holding you know it's like it's like walking around thinking you're a really attractive person and then every once in a while someone says oh by the way and they hold up a mirror and you go no 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 i i I don't like to think of the world that way and there's something beautiful to give the to give the argument it's due there's something beautiful about thinking that the world's more beautiful than it actually is uh but but i would argue it's not so helpful in designing public policy yeah well i think i think there's you know there's there's a couple things behind that feeling and i i agree it's always worth when a feeling is widely held, it's worth being as sympathetic toward it as one can because you need to figure out where it's coming from and what's going on. Yep. It's interesting to me when, um, for example, when Steve Jobs died, there was sort of this outpouring of, um, I don't know, emotional support for the man and his life's work. And what was interesting to me about that was that Steve Jobs was, you know, as ruthless a capitalist as yep. there has been. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and at that moment, though, it was okay that he was a ruthless capitalist and, and really never rich. gave any money to charity. And, and really rich. sort of celebrated <laughs> for a little while. Yep. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting that, you know, here's a moment where, um, you know, when Sam Walton dies, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if there's quite the same uh, feeling of, of, you know, wow, you know, he really revolutionized something um, and, and, and a certain kind of praise. And I think some of that is – is, for lack of a better word, I mean, you're referring to this as well. It's kind of a class thing. One of my um, one of my undergraduate uh, economics teachers, I remember when people talked about buying cheap goods at places like Walmart, uh, he used to say, everyone has a right to buy inferior merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I remember having to go home and think about that for quite a while. <laughs> but, you know, his point was, you know, it's not every place needs to be the sort of place I would shop or the sort of place I would go or the sort of thing I would do. And that's at either end, you know, upscale, downscale, in between yeah. scale. And uh, sure. so the, the heterogeneity of what's offered in markets, the, the extraordinary level of variety is something which is to me, you know, it, it's amazing. It's remarkable. It's highly attractive. I think for some folks, that level of, of variety makes them crazy. Um, they sort of look at certain things and they say, oh, you know, why should that be that way? Why can't everything be this other way? Uh, with Walmart, it's kind of why can't everything be like Costco is often the comparison you hear. Right. And you think, well, because they're, they're different really stores. different operations. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, with, I love Costco. Plans. I love Costco. I have to confess. <laughs> but I don't delude myself into thinking that everyone who works there is, is gloriously happy as opposed to the oppressed slaves at at Walmart, I think they're both very attractive choices for certain people who want to work there, and I think they're both pleasant places to shop. And I don't judge anyone who shops there, but um, but you know the version of this that I think, to get back to your more serious economics point, which I think is very relevant, is that if you're listening out there and you don't like the fact that some people at certain companies don't make much money, 
or do you think they should make more, whether it's at a local coffee place or a national chain of some kind? Uh, your question of where does the money come from, I always think of it, I ask it a different way. It's like, I understand the desire to help make their lives better, the people that you're worried about. Why would you make the people who are currently employing them pay for that? Because that encourages them not to do as much of it. That That's the problem that I have. And I think that's an unpleasant for what I think is a reality. No, I, I agree with that. I think more broadly what I struggle with, and this goes back to the original uh, point, is about this separation between production and distribution is something that economists have been you know, struggling with one way and another for a long time. And when you look at a production situation and you say, I dislike the distribution of outcome or income that results, um, it's something where, again, I think, I, I mean, I think this goes back at least to John Stuart Mill's uh, 1848 book where, you know, there's one book on production and there's another book on distribution. And he always sort of said that difference was the big, the big change in the book. And he, He'd like to argue that production has sort of a, a physical character, like a physical law. You know, you're putting things together, you're making a good or service, and distribution is the outcome of, of human institutions and human decisions to at least some extent. And so I, I'm, I'm actually pretty open to various things. There was a proposal a few years back by uh, Ed Phelps, Ned Phelps, about um, – dramatically increasing the earned income tax credit in a way that people who worked at places like Walmart, instead of being paid you know, 10 bucks an hour, they get 10 bucks an hour from Walmart and they might get another 10 bucks an hour from the, from the earned income tax credit. And he proposed, you know, spending an, an extra hundred billion dollars a year for something like that on, on that kind of a wage subsidy for low income workers. But it's, you know, it's to your point, if you, if you really think that's a valuable thing to do, um, why would you load that on the company? Why wouldn't you say if it's an important social thing to do, let's have the redistribution we want to have, but let's do it through the government, which after all, its core competency is collecting money and writing checks, and, and it's capable of doing that in a way which lets the production side operate the way it wants to operate <laughs> and and do what its core competency is of transforming goods and services. And so I, I just think that, you know, you, you can't a thousand percent separate production and distribution, but I just think that whenever you have a distribution problem, it's useful to think about, well, you know, do I care about that enough to, I don't know, pay higher taxes for it? <laughs> and if you don't, maybe you don't care about it enough to enact it. Um, well, that Telling gets somebody us, else they need to do it is a problem. <laughs> yeah, that gets us to the political economy of this. And going back to the original observation we started with about this topsy-turvy of expecting government to do one thing and expecting the private sector to do the other. And I think in this case, government – I'm going to get away from that word for a sec. Politicians, actual human beings with decision-making uh, faculties, it's, it's clear why they like blaming – the uh, producers for distributor problems because then they don't have to use scarce tax money for that purpose. So it's it's our I understand the natural incentive they have. I guess the question would be is what do they spend the rest of that money on? What are they saving it for? <laughs> right? Who? Now, one argument would be well they don't get enough credit, political credit, the earned income tax credit example, for example, um, that you mentioned. That it's going to be hard for a politician to. After that's there for a while, maybe maybe it's hard for them to get the credit for it. And uh, whereas the stuff that they save the money for, and I'd have to, we'd have to think about what that would be. It, um, maybe that has a bigger political payoff. But that's clearly the case because that's what they do. So I, I think they're pretty good at what they do: staying in office and and responding to those incentives. No, I think that's right. And I and I guess I. You know, it's always true when you look at what does the federal government do, it's sort of fair to say that the federal government is, you know, it's a health care operation, it's a, it's a retirement operation with Social Security, it's defense, and it's interest on the national debt. And everything else is not very big. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's just not. And And so when I sort of say casually, well, we should do more on research and development, or I say casually, well, not so casually, you know, maybe we need to really think about a substantial amount more of cash redistribution if that's our goal. Um, 
those are definitely things which are to some extent outside what the government has seen as its its basic core responsibilities. Um, I, I think the political economy of it is, is, as you say, it's obvious. It's it's always nice to make a pronouncement that the problem should be fixed by someone else. And it's even better if you can pass a rule or a law that says the problem should be fixed by someone else. And you don't have to doesn't have to be on the budget. <laughs> you know, it, it, that's the attraction of, I think, you know, protectionist trade legislation. It's the right. attraction it's of budget. requiring, you know, car fuel economy. It's the attraction of all kinds of things. Um, and you just sort of tell people what they ought to do. And uh, when you do that, you're then in this world where you're, you're, you're interfering in the production side of things for distribution type reasons. And without really taking costs and benefits into account. And it's, it, in some cases it works out okay, but it's a constant danger to keep an eye on, I think. Yeah, and, and I, the other part of it, of course, is that it's really politically dangerous to take money away from people compared to, say, giving money to people as, as a way to earn support. So if you wanted to institute an anti-poverty program at the, of the scope that the earned income tax credit might might lead to, and you say, well, here's how I'm going to fix that. I'm going to make uh, Social Security means tested, which I personally believe it should be. Um, I think it's absurd that that we give rich people uh, the, this benefits that and then there's redistribution built into Social Security. Put that to the side. I still think it's strange that rich people have lots of savings and and um, get paid substantial amounts by the government. And people will say, well, but but they 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 earned it. They put their money in. Yeah, well, that's kind of a that's a sham and a hoax. And I, I just think that's a... <laughs> to be blunt about it. <laughs> yeah, other than that, yeah. So I just think, I think most of us who are blessed and fortunate enough to be financially successful are very happy, would be very happy to give up some of our Social Security benefits that we had been, quote, promised. Uh, they've already gone out the door, our money. It went out to pay for all kinds of things, not Social Security. wasn't put in a lockbox, sorry. And so I think that'd be a good thing. But politically, that's not a good thing. I think politicians would be very vulnerable to the charge that they don't care about old people uh, if we cut Social Security benefits in any way, even if it was just for the rich. Now, that may change. I think when budgets and demographics are such, that'll be the first thing that gets cut. But I think one of the reasons that the status quo is so powerful is for that reason. And it's very hard to innovate and use money for new new things at the, at the government level. Um, yeah, I, I think that... To me, the, the other part of it that I struggle with is that, that you know there's direct redistribution of the sort that you and I are talking about, where you um, you know what you pay for people who are on Social Security or what sort of a wage subsidy you give for you know low income workers or low wage workers. Um, the other approach the government can take, presumably, is to take more seriously the notion of it's uh, having a role in training, uh, having a role in mobility and helping people get from one place where maybe there aren't so many jobs to another place where there might be more jobs. Uh, and to some extent, I know I keep coming back to this, but lots of people, almost all the new job growth in the economy happens because of these small startup businesses that get started and grow. So I think that thinking more seriously about you know, skills that folks need and um, and how businesses can be not loaded with too much before they're ready to handle it and how people can geographically get from the neighborhood or the city or even the state over to some other place where there are more opportunities. I think that one, one of the difficulties that, that sort of pushes this worry about inequality and wages and other things is this sense, and it, I think it's legitimate in a real sense, that some people, a large number of people, are just trapped. They they don't have the skills. They don't have alternatives for jobs. They don't you know they don't have the ability to move or relocate. And if you get a lot of people uh, after a long, slow, sluggish recession who feel that way, there's a real feeling that uh, it's a legitimate feeling that part of the American bargain, the the bargain of there will be disruption, but there will also be opportunity sort of feel like we're getting all the disruption and none of the opportunity. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, can you, in a slow way, and it's not a quick fix, rebuild some of the opportunity feeling of that on the other yeah. side? Yeah, well, that's a big issue. And I think I think the issue there is 
lot of it has to do with our education system, its inflexibility, and it's one of the areas where I think government's too involved in the production and and um, side of things. But that's a long conversation for another time. Yeah. I, we, <laughs> Sounds good. I'd like to switch gears, though, and spend our remaining time talking about your role with the Journal of Economic Perspectives. We've been talking about your blog. It's The Conversable Economist. Uh, I recommend it strongly. It is it's one of the least polemical blogs uh, that I know of that's still interesting. Um, uh, most people get people to come to their blogs by yelling and screaming, and Tim, you don't do that. I respect that a lot, and it's just a lot of thoughtful economics about a very wide range of topics, including um, uh, Dickens, uh, secular stagnation, um, the sharing economy, just the last few weeks, the kind of topics you've been writing on. So. I encourage uh, listeners to go check out your blog. But I want to talk about your role as, as with the Journal of Economic Perspectives. For listeners who don't know, talk about what that journal is uh, and how it's changed, if at all, over the last 30 years you've been uh, been doing it. Sure. So uh, non-academics will may not know this, but most academic journals are places where professors send their most recent research and then uh, it's evaluated by other professors who are called referees, and the, the referees sort of say, you know, print it, don't print it, or revise and resubmit it. Peer-reviewed, so as it's often yeah, called in the go. newspaper. Peer-reviewed is the yeah. word. And so um, back in the 1980s, there was a sense that that model, while it's useful in a lot of ways, and there are now, I think, almost a 1,000 peer-reviewed journals in economics, um, it wasn't working for a lot of the members of the American Economic Association because a lot of them, although they might have published some stuff earlier in their careers, they've sort of moved on and now they're they're teaching, they're writing, they're doing other things, but they're not really aiming at the peer-reviewed journals in the same way that they were earlier in their research careers. Um, there's also a sense that economics, like everything else, has gotten hyper-specialized, and so Economists who specialize in, I don't know, international trade um, would have a really hard time if they had to read, uh, if they had to sit down and read the most recent research in environmental economics or in um, some other area, in, internet, in industrial organization economics or monetary policy, because the mathematical and statistical tools get so specialized. So the notion was to have one journal which would not be peer reviewed. Um, instead, we ask people to write. And instead of saying, what's your most recent research, we say to them, um, you know, we, we invite people who've been active in a certain area and we say, what do we know in your area of research that we didn't know five or ten years ago? And what should we be thinking about looking forward? So we're looking for more of a, an opinionated essay. And so that's a, a very different model than most academic journals. And my, my specific job is that when you ask a bunch of research economists to write an opinionated essay, um, sometimes they have a really hard time switching yeah. formats. <laughs> and so, and so, um, so the, I'll get something and it, you know, the first paragraph will look good. And then the second paragraph will say, you know, the easiest way to understand that point is with the following simple mathematical model. And, four pages of equations will follow, quite literally. <laughs> and so I hit the delete key and I say, you know, why don't we try and say it this way? And and so I I rewrite and revise everything that goes into the journal. And uh, and so that's most of my job is that and sort of, you know, making sure that we've got enough people invited and that the flow of articles keeps coming. Um, so talk about how that experience has changed. I mean, economics... Today is very different. In 1986, I just happened to see a chart that uh, the amount of empirical uh, articles in economic journals has grown dramatically in the last, I don't know, few decades. And, sure. and part of the, I think part, I remember when the when the Journal of Economic Perspectives was started, part of it also, you mentioned two of the reasons. I think part of the reason was economics had become very theoretical. And this was a place for people to, to do economics, to write about economics that wasn't as theoretical, not just because of the specialization, but just because that's not all of economics, isn't just theory. But economics has changed a lot. So how has the journal changed over these 30 years that you've been involved? 
Well, I would say in if a funny way, because I've been enforcing a similar standard most of the time, the journal has changed less than a lot of the rest of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, for example, that if you look back at uh, the leading research journal in economics, the American Economic Review, uh, articles now are on average almost three times as long as they were in, in page count as they were 30 or 40 years wow. ago. They're also much more likely to have lots of co-authors rather than being single-authored papers. Um, They're much more likely to have lengthy uh, appendices. As you were describing, a lot of them are – they're more likely to be detailed empirical studies, and part of any empirical study is uh, you explain in the paper what you did – but then um, as you go through the referee process, the referees say, well, what if you did it this way? What if you did it that way? Would it make a difference if you tried this? What about if – and so you try all those things, but you don't want to put them all in the paper or the paper would be you know, a thousand pages long. But you can put them in a big appendix somewhere. Smaller print, so, um, tighter spacing. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So it's um, – so uh, – I would say that a lot of the other academic journals have have changed dramatically in what an article looks like. Um, another concern that has often come up in in the academic journals, the I mean the peer-reviewed academic journals, is that it's taken longer over time for the process of referee reports and peer review to happen. Yeah. And so often what happens now is that a paper is pretty much ready to go. And it will be posted somewhere as a working paper on a website. And then uh, it has to go through this last round of little changes and little updates and little tweaks and little additions to the appendix and try this and try that. And then by the time the paper is actually published, it might literally be three, four, five years later. Uh, and so and so people learn about the paper on the website in the in the working version. And in a way, they don't even really pay attention to when it's actually published because they know it will have been tweaked and changed, but it, it, the changes usually aren't important enough to worry a whole lot about them. Um, and so, again, the, the thing that's made this journal different is we, we oddly enough, we're, I mean, we're an academic journal. We're, we have, you know, as you might imagine, the, the slow turnaround times we ask someone to write and they write us a draft in six months or nine months, and it takes us a couple months to work on it with them and get it turned around, another few months to get it into print. So from the original idea to publication for us can often be 12 or 15 or 18 months. Um, but that puts us way ahead of a lot of other academic journals um, in, terms of, in terms of turnaround. And um, I've kept uh, the articles in the journal are pretty much the same length as they were 30 years ago. We haven't tripled in length. You know, we because we invite people, we don't tend to end up with these group authors of seven different people were involved in a research project, and so they all need to be authors. We tend to have, you know, one or two or, you know, sometimes a few more authors. And so I guess the, the fun part of it for me, and it's something I learned about myself a long time ago, is that... Uh, is that I have I have what I call a grasshopper mind. You know, I, I hop from thing to thing, and the the journal has enormous variety, and I I love the variety. The variety really keeps me going week to week and and uh, and year to year. I, I guess I should mention that the American Economic Association that publishes the journal has made it freely available online. So if you want to check it out, you can go to the website, which is. Um, e-jep.org, or you can just Google Journal of Economic Perspectives, and you'll find it quickly enough. But both the current issues and all the previous issues back to 1987 are freely available online. So you can just sort of scan through, you know, see if there's anything that's of interest to you. Um, And if I've done my job right, and you have some background in economics, not hyper-technical, but you're not going to freak out when people talk about supply and demand, um, you should be able to get a reasonable amount out of the articles. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'd like to hear you comment on is that you know I understand the challenges of, of editing economists' writing. I, I did some of that myself. <laughs> yeah, you've been there. Uh, I've been there, and I, I feel like, and I'm just curious to get your perspective, I feel like we're in the golden age of economic communication. So again, for listeners who don't know the journal you're, we're talking about, it's very accessible. It's written in everyday English. It doesn't have as much jargon as a, a peer-reviewed article would have. And um, 
I assume there are a lot more people capable of writing attractive articles that the amount of work in theory that you have to do to make it accessible for the audience that you'd like it to reach has gotten a little bit easier maybe. Is that true? I don't think it is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> At least not not from the chair I'm sitting in. Okay. And I I don't know exactly why that is. I mean, I sort of wondered over time if it would get easier or harder, but I, I don't know, maybe maybe I just have short-term memory, but, you know, I we ask for articles that are roughly in the range of seven or 8,000 words of, of main text. And, you know, this week I've been working on an article where the first draft came in at 15,000 words of main text and half of it wow. was equations. Wow. And, okay. um, and, and, and I just sort of think to myself when I get something like that, you know, I've been doing this 30 years. You haven't figured this out yet. <laughs> um, you know, what, what we're looking for and what we want. Um, but I guess it seems to me that year after year, um, I, I, I continue to get articles that really need a, a heavy hand in editing. And, uh, I, I think it is true because of, uh, because of the web and because of the many different publication outlets that, uh, economists who are a little more gifted at exposition, have more outlets than they used to have, and there are more places you can turn for sort of a summary of something yeah. or an overview of something. And I think that's that's right. But um, most of the people we're inviting to write are the you know are the the hardcore research economists who've been doing research in this area for quite a while. And when you take those people out of their comfort zone and start saying write a write an explanatory essay, an awful lot of them find it very difficult to do. <laughs> um, they're not unwilling, mind you. I mean, I, once I've suggested stuff, they're often quite happy to go with it, and, and they're often quite pleased with the result. But it's it's really clearly not what they do. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so I, I feel that every day of my working life. <laughs> my guest today has been Timothy Taylor. Tim, thanks for being part of EconTalk. A pleasure. Thanks for talking to you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.